Welcome to the Propane Business Podcast. I'm Johnny. And I'm Yusuf. We set up and built propanefitness.com into the profitable semi-automated system that it is today, which allowed us to quit our corporate jobs and coach online full-time. More importantly, we were able to do this without a huge online audience or being glued to social media every day. We're now ready to share everything from the failures we've made to the systems that now consistently generate hundreds of thousands in revenue. We help personal trainers, coaches, and gym owners do the same by avoiding the mistakes we've made and the best practices going forward. Subscribe to this podcast to learn what we're doing and what we've done to build and scale propanefitness.com. We'll be teaching you how to generate a steady flow of online clients, win at Facebook ads, automate your coaching systems, and to achieve financial independence. And there he is, Dr. Mike. Oi. Hello. Is that appropriate? A greetings for the folks <laughs> from the British Isles? That's how we all say hello. That's uh, exactly that. Especially to like an old lady coming around the shop. Like, Oi, she's Oi, mate. <laughs> exactly. Just call everyone mate, male. <laughs> so we have this running joke with Eric Helms because he, he uses Britishisms. I think he's been in New Zealand too long and he started to lose his American edge. And he's saying things like petrol, which blew our mind. When... <laughs> Eric, do you mean gasoline? He says like petrol. Pet- yeah. It's good though. He's trying really hard. I think that's, that is all that counts. Do you think he's trying or he should just naturally say it so often he just starts saying it? Oh yeah. He'll be I... the, um, like a bowl of hats and stuff soon. <laughs> <laughs> just talk, bring up the queen. Like guys, how's the queen doing? <laughs> How's things, Mike? Good, good, good. I'm. Yeah. Uh, I have a hard cutoff in 57 minutes. That's all good. That's I've all also good. starred in an adult film called Hard Cutoff. <laughs> sounds sounds hot. It was. It was good. Movie. Mm. Was it 57 minutes long? It was exactly 57 <laughs> minutes long. The, the, the key selling point of that adult film is the precision of it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Are you tired of mere approximations to pornographic content? Yes. Well, and you'll love this precise adult. Like the timestamps are spot on. There's no guessing. Yeah. It's not an approximation. Yeah. yeah. Dude, okay. Yo, real talk though. When you, I don't consume adult feature films because I'm a morally elevated person. But if I was, when you scroll, there's like the <laughs> preview bar. And like, you're like, yeah, this is the scene I want. You click on it, but it's off. So you're like, wait, but this is stupid. This isn't what I wanted. You don't know if it's behind or in front. That's unbelievable. It's unbelievable how inconvenienced I have to be consuming completely free pornography. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I would think that they would have incentives to make it better. It's filthy. It's really, it's really. It, it really is. It's the fall of Western civilization. This is why they have the paid model, isn't it? It's like people get slowly and slowly more and more irritated with it. And they're like, you know what? enough i'm gonna get my credit card and put the details in to get the Yo, precise timestamps. real talk like of hard cut off. actually to fitness as well is <laughs> paid porn is the shit first of all now of course as a person who never consumes pornography or never has i wouldn't know anything about that but because i do know about that i will say paid porn is the shit because you have all your favorites everything's super high quality it's guaranteed no bullshit like it's awesome you know what the paid model people would think the paid model is over you guys remember in like the 2000s the Chinese movie sites came up and you could watch any movie for free, but it was like probably 10 viruses and it was really shitty quality. And a lot of people were like, dude, no one's going to movies anymore. China just puts them up for free. And it's like, really? And then Amazon, Netflix, et cetera, came up and it's, oh, you're going to pay for this? Yeah, I'm going to pay for it because it's unbelievable quality. It's guaranteed. No viruses. Paying for shit is fucking sweet. Yeah. I've always wondered how like 
Pornhub makes so much money, but they, they clearly manage, don't they? Ads. And also they have a pay site. Pornhub has a, a pay premium. I guarantee you there's millions of people that pay for that shit. Of course, I'm not one of them. <laughs> I am a scholar. You made it very clear from the beginning, Mike, that you've never consumed that, nor will you ever consume it. So I'm getting ready for a career in politics. Can you tell? Yeah. Yeah. Is that Does that come after the hard cutoff? The, so that's your kind of... Know, that's how you I don't breach. know what you're talking about. <laughs> My first group tells me to deny all claims of my former pornographic life. It's a pretty like established route to fame, though, isn't it? Sex tape, and then a bit of controversy. Find yourself in like reality TV. Like, oh, isn't that guy from the sex tape? Uh, and now he's into politics. <laughs> he's literally had all those things. His own reality TV show, a sex tape, the whole thing. I didn't. I didn't really have a sex tape. Oh yeah, but he. So he had an, an adult film star that was paid money to urinate onto him. And he signed a contract with her that she wouldn't release any details about that. But here we are talking about it. Yes. Solid contract, Donald. Played, mate. Yeah. Very well played. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to fuck up your podcast. No, no. Let's <laughs> get into it. <laughs> Worst intro ever. This is it. it was just, we just wanted to talk about the free versus paid porn yeah. industry. and thoughts. What's this episode about? You know, who knows? It's actually a roundtable with Lyle McDonald about... Oh, yes. And he's hidden. His, his camera's off. Because his booming voice in a second. <laughs> Mike. I imagine he sounds like Godzilla. <laughs> have you not spoken to him? I've, sp- I've spoken to him. I had a uh, face-to-face <laughs> debate on Steve Hall's channel. I think we, we discussed that briefly on the last episode where you were talking about trying to find common ground and me- meeting in the middle, and it, it didn't really go that way with, with Lyle. But Yeah. So, Mike, would you be up for discussing more because i think last time we, we talked more about kind of the, the title was content marketer or from coach to content marketer it's more about the business side we would love to discuss a bit more about your your personal routines your your mental models that you use for kind of assimilating information stuff about <clears throat> keeping ego in check and authenticity and that kind of thing what do you I love that absolutely yeah cool boring alert my daily routine sucks so you could just tune out if you're listening to this why does it suck? It's boring. I think that's interesting in and of itself. So I think people like shit like that, Mike. They like hearing what right, people we're do. We're going to find out. Your ep- this episode of your podcast reviews are just on the line about your last statement. We'll see if you're right. Yeah. <laughs> you're like not getting the views you usually do. You're like, fuck me. I'm wrong. Well, yeah, let's porn. find out. What's, what does your day look like normally? Yes, yeah, very easy question to answer because all, um, almost all my days are profoundly similar. So I, I wake up and I generally have a protein shake or something like that. I occasionally have solid food, but we train shortly thereafter. And if I have solid food before training, usually it just comes up exactly the way it went in. Mm-hmm. So I have a protein shake. I do some sort of minor tasks around the house, prepare for the day. I always look at my to-do list. So actually any day for me starts the day before when I assemble my to-do list and that way I know exactly what I have to do for that day. And then I usually, I wake up around 8.30 or something. And then at 10, Jared and I go to train for an AM session, train AM, come back, sit down, have a meal. And then I begin working for the day. Sometimes that includes like today podcasts, but uh, if I don't have any podcasts or anything else to do, then I create content for YouTube. I write books I design and alter and work with our development team on the app stuff that we're always doing in RP and a bunch of different stuff. So just basically sit in this chair and do office work. And then at some point, 
Around 3 p.m., we go do our p.m. session again at the gym. Then I come back and work more. A couple meals thrown in there. And then some days of the week, I'll have Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So like around 7 or 7.30 p.m., I'll go do that. Get beat up, come home, shower. I think I shower like three times every day. And then sometimes do a little bit of work, but usually around 9 p.m. is when I shut it down. My wife usually is home or gets home around then. She's a doctor going through fellowship. She works like an inordinate number of hours. And then we watch a couple episodes of cartoons or some kind of Netflix show. Sometimes Jared joins in and Jared doesn't like a bunch of the shows we watch. My wife and I watch My 600 Pound Life, which is a show about (laughs) obese people getting surgery. And Jared hates that. And uh, he hates the show Cops because it deals too much with meth-addicted white people, which is like more or less 90% of his family. So he's seen it all too much. And then so by around 11 o'clock, I start getting the bedtime routine going. My wife has already fallen asleep on the couch. I have a casein shake before I go to bed. I take my evening supplements and stuff. When I wake up, I take like vitamins and stuff in the morning too. And I shower one last time and tuck in to go to sleep. What I'll do in the evening, like when I'm taking my evening dump or whatever. By the way, I shit like four to six times a day. That's important to note. But usually when I'm taking my evening dump or just relaxing, what I'll do is I'll read some like economics blogs or some kind of science blogs and stuff. I like to keep up with that. Uh, And then I go to sleep and I wake up and I damn near repeat it verbatim all the time. My uh, routine changes a little bit on weekends where on weekends I will do like half of all that stuff. And then so Friday or Saturday when I get done with work, maybe at five or six, I like full on switch the brain off. We're super relaxation mode. Sometimes we go out to eat. And then Sunday I do wake up and do some cardio. And also I have, sorry, various points in the day where I walk around to get in my steps. I get in 10,000 steps every day because I have a step tracker. And uh, Sunday is like half day of work and then the other half just relaxing and really trying to rest and recover. It's my only day off of all training. And then the next day, Monday is back in it. So today's Monday. It's back in the grind on Groundhog Day. Nice. I think what I'm most impressed by there is the ratio of poo to shower. <laughs> I think that's, like, that's obviously something you've progressively overloaded over time but you've got to are you saying the ratio is in the dirty direction or the clean direction i think you because you've got a one-to-one almost three to four showers four to six poos so slightly in favor i don't shower after every poo the problem is that if i get sweaty and stay sweaty my nether regions begin begin to decay (laughs) for lack of a better term that's what they invented baby powder for and i am a profuse user of baby powder but shower, nothing beats the shower. So. so I'm a massive proponent of the bum gun, otherwise known as the shatuffer. I think you might have... Wait, did you spend some time in Asia a couple of years ago? Yes. Of course, yeah. So always in any bathroom there, the little little shower head that you can use to, to spray your bum hole with. And I just think they're incredible. Like, oh, I've always never avoided sure. this art, saying that if you got a bit of poo on your like hand or your face, you wouldn't just wipe it off with dry paper. Yeah, we do the same thing with our bums. And so enter the shop. It's something I think future people will look back on and look at like medieval people who cut dinner meat with their like regular sword or didn't wash their hands at all (laughs) or blew their snot into one common bowl. Something that they find is not if you sat down with a medieval person, you nominally explain to them what was going on. They'd be like, yeah, I guess it's gross, but we're so used to it. I think in the future, we're all going to be Japanese and and washing our asses after every time we poop. And the people that don't, it would just be like the biggest faux pas ever. But hold up. There's problems with that because check this out. What if you're on an international flight? 
Yeah, it depends where the plane's originating from, doesn't it, as to whether they're equipped with one. But see, like I've never, I've been on a lot of planes and I've flown business class a lot. I ain't never seen a plane with an asshole washer. Yeah, so you've got to bring your own. You'd need pressurized. Yeah, it's like a Ghostbusters proton pack. And they're like, what the hell is that? You're like, they're like, please, by all means. They've got the beer stuff or like the the Uh beer funnels. Yes. Just one of them, but just reverse it. Yeah. Pressurize. They're like, is that beer? You're like, no, it's it's clean water with similar suns. You could make a portable one, like a, a portable pump-up one, like a bike pump with a tube. I think like this yeah, ways. Well, we're not taking a powered device on a plane because you're not allowed to have lithium batteries or whatever. That shit will get you in trouble. But yeah, what if it malfunctions at altitude and you're sitting next to someone and all of a sudden you're like, oh, oh shit, my soap broke. What does that mean? We're going to be accidentally cleaner than you imagined we'd be, but also wet. <laughs> like, ah, shit. So the thing I was most impressed by, aside from the Pusha ratio, is how many... T- do you train... 12 days, 12 sessions a week? Not So if you include jiu-jitsu, it's like 14. But right. uh, it's 10 weightlifting sessions, 10 resistance training sessions. And then a bunch of cardio, which I don't even count as sessions. But there, I just throw on the headphones, listen to an audio book, or talk to someone, or even do a podcast. So I don't really count that as training, I suppose it is. And then jiu-jitsu is two to four times a week. So it's a lot of training. It's, it's a lot of training. Days in which I don't train twice feel really, whoa, what the hell? I got nothing to do. And oh, the days in which I don't train at all, I'm just like an unmoored ship lost in the night. So, yeah, a lot of training. Do you, do you find that like when you're training that much that you it affects your work at all? Do you find that – so, for example, if I go through a heavy week of training, I'll wake up on like Friday morning you're like, oh, fucking hell. Like, the last thing I want to do is sit and produce content or – record something because i do just feel and it, maybe you're about to tell me that i'm overdoing my volume and i need to consider my my maximum recoverable volume but yeah, it, really is that how simple i am That's <laughs> all <I'd> say. <laughs> fine great you just you might as well just talk for me here <laughs> oh my mate you're the mrv guy again. well now now you can't mention that in the answer so do you, do you ever find that you that it affects your work negatively or yeah, in the last week of accumulation, it affects everything. Sleep, work, sexual, drive. Like, it was TMI, but trying to jack off on peak week, sometimes you get it out and you're like, here we go. And then halfway through, you're like, fuck, this is going to take an undue amount of effort for a desire I no longer seem to have. So, yeah, it, it affects everything. I, I don't, I still produce content. Uh, it might just be a little bit more grindy, a little more slow, a little less inspiration, but I still try to work through peak week, but most of the other weeks training this much I'm used to. I will say that if I trained less, my intellectual output would almost certainly be greater just because I'd get more time, probably less fatigue. But right now in this stage of my life, I have to balance the two because I still speak considerably with my physique. Eventually in my 40s, I'll retire from bodybuilding and get a lot smaller. I'll produce more content then, but I have to have a basis of on which people will consider me believable and getting jacked and super lean is a real good start so it's almost like wick in and of itself then sure yeah it definitely is not i can't say my training it would be illusory for me to say my training is a hobby like it's more than a hobby for sure it's a hashtag lifestyle bit fam (laughs) so when you're setting up the week and this is something that I'd, i'd be keen to explore with you which is that you straddle between the very academic 
like you've, you've been a professor, you process large mm. volumes of information that's quite abstracted and quite erudite for a social media audience. And you're having to step in both of those worlds, both when you're creating content in terms of simplifying and communicating that, but also having the mental bandwidth to be able to process those large amounts of information. Do you segregate those two in your head or do you arrange the week so that one is separate from the other? And have you found the kind of transition from acad academia over to content marketing is that something that comes naturally or have you had to make some shifts with how you approach them both? It's a really good question. I'm not in charge of marketing at RP. We have at least two other people that do that, depending on how you categorize it, possibly three or four. But I do have to tailor my messaging to an audience that is more simplified, more has a big take-home point in every single line of content, has fewer lines of content. So it's definitely like knowledge as advertising is definitely something I create pretty regularly. Do sort my work day into times. So if I have a big stretch of time open, I do the heavy intellectual lifting because I can really warm up into it and get into it, work through difficult things. If I'm in an Uber on my way to a location that's 20 minutes away, I don't even bother with heavy intellectual shit. The only thing I do is get right into it with like sharing memes or something or making posts of old book quotes or something like that. Because that is still work, but it's work I can do without thinking much. And it's very small clusters of work. So I can stop halfway through and not be off. What I don't like to do is get deep intellectual thoughts going and then I have to get out of an Uber and go train. And I'm like, fuck, like I had to write this down, blah, blah, blah. So I definitely, the highly intellectual stuff does take more of a sit down and think kind of thing. I think a lot of people maybe don't do that part, but most of the greatest intellectual tools that I have and realizations that I've made have come from sitting and thinking deeply about things. I think that the depth of analysis you could get by sitting and calmly thinking about just one concept for 30 or 40 minutes is unbelievable. And you'll instantly refute a whole bunch of things tons of people fall for because when they think about them, they take maybe a couple seconds or maybe two or three minutes. They don't really flesh everything out. It's another reason why writing books on a subject can make you real expert on it because you have to go deep. And while on that journey, you start to think of things like, whoa, I never thought about this. I never thought about that relationship. So it can be a big deal potentially. That's really interesting. So it's, it's opportunistically looking for those <clears throat> big stretches of uninterrupted time to go deep with stuff and not to try and fail if, you're, if you've only got little bits of time available. And I guess it comes down to switching time and distractibility. And when you're in a kind of you're operating in a world that is very frenetic, trying to do something that's requiring long, heavy horsepower is just square peg, round hole. The idea of, I don't know if you've heard this research about taking 18 minutes after an interruption to get back into the flow of what you were doing. And most people, especially if they have their notifications enabled on their phone, are getting interrupted way more than every 18 minutes. So it's basically like never getting anything done. Sure. That doesn't surprise me. When I get into work mode, I take my phone. So my phone is always on silent. Always. Yeah, I don't have any kind of notifications pop up unless it's text messages. Like my Insta doesn't pop up on my phone unless I'm in Instagram. My Facebook doesn't. That would be nuts. And what I do is take the phone. I just put it entirely away. Actually, right now I'm on the podcast and my phone is right over there. Mm. And it's, I would have to reach across to try to get it. I got nothing to look at it. So when I'm doing deep intellectual work, I put my phone away 
I don't go on any other websites. A really good thing in my position, I work on social media so much. I have to post so often daily just to keep up like contributing to the extent that I want to and staying relevant and offering value that I no longer have an association of Instagram, for example, most social media as this dopamine hit thing because it's such a job for me. I'm not ever, I don't get into mindless scrolling much because I have to scroll for work. By the time I'm done scrolling for work, I'm like, fuck this. Somebody's, ooh, I've got a chance to catch up on social media. I'm like, but I've been doing this shit all day. <laughs> so it's really easy for me to put the phone away. And also, I don't know. I think, and I don't want to say this in the wrong way, but I think if you're a thinking person, which may be tougher if you're on social media a lot, but if you notice patterns, sometimes you realize that the social media scroll algorithm doesn't give you the deep kind of fulfillment that you want out of doing something that much. It's like this real saccharine, like, oh, that's nice to see. Oh, that's a funny dog. That's cool. Oh, I didn't know that person started lifting. But after a couple of cycles of scrolling, you're like, this is just more of the same. It's like eating really shitty candy. It's just the only kind of candy you have around. After a while, you're like, I'm not going to even reach into the bowl to get the candy. So for me, social media, it's not something that distracts me as much as I think it does some other people. But I can totally see why it would, because the entire world is on there. It's always new. The news feed is always updated. And it's really easy to get into the kind of list, like getting these little dopamine hits keep going. For me, my standard for what gives me a good dopamine hit is higher than social media. So it's relatively easy for me to be like, fuck this. I'm going to go do some real work. I'll tell you the sensation I get after writing a, a section in a book or something or really fleshing out a deep intellectual concept is like pure elation. This can't be matched by anything on social media. And if I'm scrolling on social media for long enough and I don't get anything done, I feel this like dirtiness about like, what did I just waste a bunch of time for? I feel, whereas if I got something really big accomplished, I feel incredible. And also I got something accomplished. So it's two birds with one stone there. Do you have anything that like, you, you find is a distraction if you're just struggling to focus on a spe specific day. I think most people would find themselves on Facebook or Instagram. Do you have anything that's similar to that? Or So I have attention deficit disorder and I had it my whole life. I had a lot worse when I was a kid. So I know all about distraction. But with attention deficit disorder, so everything is distracting. Random noises, the neighbors start talking, which is why when I work, I do it in a very quiet space that's all to myself. And then I don't have a lot of distractions. Some of my thoughts can distract me. I'll think about other stuff, but usually I have the real serious pleasure of being able to work on stuff for my job, the stuff I like a lot anyway, for the most part, anywhere so related to a field I like that I can get in and really get a lot of work done without being super, super distracted. But yeah, there's no shortage of stuff that you can do that's really fun. I do have some rules though. I'll tell you guys this. So actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I don't watch TV almost ever until it's the nighttime relaxed time. I just don't turn on TV in the middle of the day because to me, TV is exclusively for the sole purpose of relaxing and enjoying and until I get my work done for the day. I'm unable to relax and enjoy probably because of Ashkenazi Jewish genetics, but in, and also the way I've trained myself over time. Remember one time my uh, grandma told me when I was probably four, she says, what is this? Which in Russian means once you've done your task, you can bravely go and relax and enjoy yourself. And of course, the corollary is that before you've done your task, you shouldn't be enjoying yourself. <laughs> so to me, that hit me in a huge way when I was a little kid. I was probably primed to receive it. And also because I had attention deficit disorder, I couldn't focus on tasks. 
I would always be relaxing when tasks weren't done. And I had this unbelievable threat of guilt and shame and it ruined all the relaxation times. Mm -hmm. So to me, I structure my life as an adult, always get your stuff done first and then you can relax. So for me, it's very difficult to get distracted because that feeling hits me right away. What the fuck are you doing? You're supposed to be working. How dare you? To a lot of people that were successful their whole life, relatively speaking, where they could just put her in, get some work done and put her out. There's not that big push towards, okay, let's get all the work done. And I honestly think that some people were, are not as successful as they could be because they have never struggled in a way to try to get their attention and they've never struggled with the productivity. I think if you're real smart, you can do a pretty good job at life without hardly trying. And then you have an easy time of things, but you never rise up to that level. What happened with me is I couldn't try very hard. So it burned me real bad. And I remember promising myself that if I ever had a normal brain, I'd use the fuck out of it. And when I got a normal brain, I used the fuck out of it. And I've built myself quite a little empire of productive things. And I'm super happy about that. I don't know if that would have been the case if I just took my ability to work and sit and calmly produce value for granted. And I never do take it for granted. Anytime I'm productive, I'm, wow, I can't believe I did that shit. I still can't believe I, I wrote nine books or some crazy shit like that. So as the wise Pink Floyd once said, uh, if you don't eat your meat, you can't have any pudding. <laughs> really philosophy ahead of its time. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I, I really like that perspective and that it's going into work with an appreciation for I am able to do this and I'm not going to just spaff it on watching TV in the middle of the day. So aside from the structuring of your environment and having these kind of hard rules of TV in the evening, quiet environment, when going deeper into this, are there any mental models that you use to process large amounts of, of new data fit them into a framework and kind of that allows you to see clearly what's a false claim from one that that might be true or so do, are there any processes you use to assess hypotheses and work through them yes god yes <laughs> so much yes i'm not writing a book about critical thinking <laughs> and i don't have a preview to share with you guys right now about the top 10 things I think it's 10-ish strategies for sorting out BS from not BS when you're not an industry expert. Do you guys just want to hear that for shits and Yeah, that, that wasn't even a planted question, guys. <laughs> yeah, that was brilliant. Mate, are you in my computer? <laughs> was, that, was that a dog shit British accent? <laughs> it's pretty good. It's yeah. fucked up. I know for a fact that some American actors can do a flawless British accent. Here's how I know that. Because you motherfuckers, British, ac British accented people have played Americans in roles before and I straight up had no fucking clue. Tom Holland or whatever his name is, Spider-Man. Yeah. Motherfucker's yeah. one of you people. And <laughs> you would have never in a million years would be like, he's from Brooklyn. Yeah. So there's gotta be American actors that can pull off like London, like South London slang and just be like, totally. Yeah. That guy's from fucking London. I think Christian Bale's pretty good at it. No shit. Hold on. What do you mean? What do you mean? I think he's quite good at uh, British accents. He's British. He is British. Yeah. Oh, so that shows how much it. This is looking real bad for you. <laughs> I've seen like wow. three huh. films in my life. That's, that explains it. Yeah, we got to get more. That's how good he is. That he feels it's, me. Yeah, can't tell at all that he is British. But then, he, so no, he's not British. Is he really? So I'm, I'm going to have to, I'm gonna have to check. Me now. Because then he does the American accent. 
really well. <laughs> I'm. This is going to look terrible for me if he's not British, but I'm, no, I. I think you're right because I've heard him like kicking off on set, like someone someone recorded him being angry at the film crew. That's it. In a British accent. It so was British. I didn't character. think it was. Yeah, he's, he's like, oi, fucking can't. Oi, mate. Oh, are you? He is a an English actor known for his wow. versatility and intensive method acting. So yeah, I think he in South London. I fucking <laughs> stick you. You're like, holy shit. <laughs> he he got interviewed for American Psycho, and he was just in the character the entire time. So he's like in character for the, the entire time they're filming. So you've probably seen interviews with him in not his accent, which is why. Yeah. Henry Cavill's another one. Or Henry Cavill is like Superman. He's, and he's, he's British. Apple pie. He's absolutely British. But like, real talk, and I don't want to get too far off subject, <laughs> but it, when I found out Henry Cavill's British and I heard him speak his British accent, my previous 9 out of 10 homosexual proclivity towards him <laughs> is now a 10 out of 10. I would absolutely <laughs> let that man do anything to my body or mind. I, if, if it's like, hey, you're going to go on a date with Henry Cavill and he's going to break your heart, I would be like, where do I go break my heart? Give, okay. Show me the yeah. rocks and the hammer. Because and the British it. accent tipped you from a nine to a ten. That was the... Really? Whoa. You guys do know that British accents in the United States means you're automatically more civilized, smarter, refined, and have a mysterious sexuality. But everyone thinks you're from London and like friends with Prince William... Yeah, 100%. They don't know any better. That's their problem. That's an opportunity for you to lie and get laid extra in America. <laughs> so actually then, Mike, it's, it's probably worth working on the, the British accent for if you get pulled over by the police or anything. Sounds like... It could Terribly be. sorry, mate. No, no joke. They would be like, welcome to America, sir. Sorry to disturb you. Here's your wow. license. I'm not even kidding. I think you're pretty close, Mike. I mean, just don't be like fuck off, cunt. <laughs> That's more like more of my Australian. Oh yeah, nah, cunt. Fuck off. Yeah, I got a better Australian than I do English. I got to work on it. All right, all right, all right. This is a little bit different than the specific question you were asking. Whereas, like, how do you create mental models and take truth apart from reality? But um, this is specifically, and this is a subcomponent of that. And I think it's going to be relatively beneficial to your viewers. Because a lot of times we come into fields where we're not the expert or it's a subfield that we're not experts in. And people make all sorts of claims. And it's, it becomes difficult to be like, people are like, hey, do you think this guy's bullshitting or not? And you're like, fuck, I don't really know. Even if you're not an expert, there are ways to tell. You guys read it? All right. Let's go. So I'm just reading it right off my computer. Checklist. First. So first, it's all probabilistic which means that there's no guarantee that a claim is going to be false just because it checks these boxes. But if it checks one, two, three, four, et cetera, boxes, the more boxes it checks, the more likely it is that it's a BS claim. And if it checks very few of them, it could still be bullshit, but that's less likely. So the first one is if a claim violates the underpinning fundamentals of laws of physics, biology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if someone makes a sociological claim, such as biological sex does not exist, and then they rattle off some sociology stuff. You don't really have to know sociology. They're probably bullshitting you because biological sex for sure exists. It's not something that's been debated in biology actually ever. Imagine coming up to a veterinarian and they're like, so the way you tell a female bulldog and male apart is, and you're like, that's all nonsense though because there's no such thing as sex. She would just be like, okay, so what's the punchline, <laughs> right? So if something violates underpinning fundamentals, it's probably wrong. So for the fitness industry, this one's real easy because if someone's turning your fat into muscle, you're like, 
I'm pretty sure those are two different tissues. That's not how science works. Maybe they have a truth claim in there, but it's probably wrong. Make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Point number two is when a claim or idea ignores, dismisses, or unconvincingly argues against well-intentioned alternative views or questions. If someone's, your theory states this and that, but what do you think about this other thing? You'd be like, nah, this is just, only stupid people would ask that question. You're like, huh, I feel like you're hiding something that's actually bullshit. So I always make sure, especially Instagram, when there's well-meaning questions about well, how do you explain this and that, I always make sure to try to explain it or at least reference some work which explains it. Because if you're a little too dodgy of arguments against, maybe you're just dodgy of arguments against because you're so bored with all of them and maybe you do hold the truth. But if you're dodgy enough or you dismiss arguments against your idea, ah, don't worry about that, maybe you're hiding something. Point number three is if a claim is layered heavily with emotion and or moralistic taboo, if you say, hey guys, diets work and calories matter, if someone's like, you're just being fat phobic, okay, this, it seems like you have a real emotional attachment to treating fat people with a ton of respect, which is a super awesome thing to have. But if that prevents you from admitting that calories and activity and stuff work, uh, man, you're probably concluding a lot of shit that's really wrong because for you to admit diets work is like moralistically off the table because you're like so anti-diet culture that you're like, we can't have this. But again, most people can make correct points just when you're really like moralistic. If you walk into an American church or something and they're like homosexuality is evil and you're like why and they're like because you're like i don't know if this is like a real defensible claim next one is when a claim comes with a complex web of what i've stolen from thomas Sowell is the term by no means clear ideas that interweave and support it so if you're trying to figure out how the u.s election was stolen by joe biden you'd be like all right so the machines the vote counting machines they're already bad okay but that nobody knows about it except for me Uh uh-huh but then the people at the polling place, they knew about it, but didn't also like, uh-huh. But there's this mass coordination of which there's no evidence. So, so far, we have like at least four claims, all of which have these tiny probabilities of by themselves being correct. If all four are going to correct, you have to multiply all of them. We're down to the one in 10,000 chance this shit ever happened. So a lot of like weird conspiratorial claims. Some of the people like logic for keto. So for example, they're like, keto works. And you're like, yeah, but it doesn't. They're like, it's because you're not fat adapted. You're like, okay, when do I get fat adapted? So you got to do this real specific thing, and then, but only if. And then also the, and you're like, okay, if I have to believe 18 independent ideas, Ideas, all of which are unlikely to believe your claim, the shit is getting out of hand. Now, maybe you're still correct, but yeah, call me a little bit wary about that. The next one is when you claim a revolutionary discovery, invention, or conclusion without explicit due diligence in explaining how it works. So I don't know if you guys have seen these advertisements. This guy, in, I think in the United States, he made this like contraption made from bands, which you do your resistance training. And he's, he'll have ads that are like, weightlifting and cardio don't work. Try this method. And you're like, okay. And then, your, your method is better than lifting or cardio. <laughs> I'm going to have to see some like pretty decent rationalization versus just believing you. Like it sounds weird. Next one is really uh, similar. It when you seem to attempt to evade testing of claims, or if your claims are tested, they turn out wrong, then you're saying it was an improper test. Again, keto people are a great example of this. There'll be five studies that come out saying keto doesn't work, and they're like, people just want keto adapted. They're like, well, how long does it take to get keto adapted? Because this one study ran for 18 months, and apparently longer, because you, once you get keto adapted, all the magic happens. I feel like you're just avoiding, there's no test we can design for you that you won't like unless keto turns out to be true. A lot of times, psychics that claim to have psychic powers, when they get tested and they inevitably fail, they'll say, oh, my, this test was like the negative energy threw me off. And it's like, Maybe. So did, sure. Did you ever see that documentary on Flat Earth? On uh, It was in Netflix. Yes. Very similar. Yes. Where, where they said that they had the pinhole test across 300 meters and they shone the light yep. through. 
And then they were like, oh, no, it's because of it needs to do it in a Gaussian chamber. And they did it in a Gaussian <laughs> yeah. chamber and it still didn't work. And they were like, oh, but it's because yeah. of uh, heavenly energies that are moving. The, and it's like just shifting the goalposts at every stage. 100%. And shifting goalposts is a, is a real bad look. It's, and again, it's no guarantee. Some people have really poor defenses uh, of, of various ideas that's still true. As a matter of fact, that's one of the most painful things to see is a really bad defense of an idea you think is true. Like I'm politically like a libertarian or you guys would just call like a liberal or whatever I think, like pro-freedom. And every now and again, like you hear defense of freedom. That's just the worst thing I heard. I'm like, can you just shut up? Cause you're making a bad look bad for all of us. Like freedoms because God damn it. It's what America's built on. Woo. And you're like, <laughs> that's not really an argument. Please don't listen to that person. And it's like the people that discovered like calories in calories out yesterday. Like it's just all about calories and calories out. Nothing else matters. And like, ah, yeah, there's some truth to that, but please don't let this person be the one to tell you. So again, it could be, but it's just not really likely. Next one is a real trippy one. When an argument or claim fails to define its terms, equivocates its definitions, or is generally unclear in its language, even when that language or concept is actually quite simple in the end, you got to worry about stuff. You got to worry about if there's a claim being lost in there. I remember there was a, a gentleman who authored the book Squat Every Day. He had a rant in part of the book and on certain social media platforms about the, the entire paradigm of the analysis of dose response was flawed and, and perhaps biological systems didn't really work in the way we thought. But the way he was saying that was like excessively verbose. And if he said it in simpler terms, it would just be fucking blatantly wrong. But people are like, man, this guy's really smart. I'm like, I agree with you, but I also think he's wrong. <laughs> so a lot of times you can really weave a big, if you can't really get your ideas down to slightly simpler language and at least concretely define your terms, maybe you're not doing that because either it's bullshit or you like, cognitive dissonance style avoiding the hard questions in your own ideology so the, these are all ways of dressing up and, and obfuscating the the claim because they're not really clear absolutely. what they're saying so absolutely all, all of these ones you've mentioned so far and yeah you might might get onto something different but these all seem like devices that people use to substantiate a claim that they're not fully able to to flesh out mechanistically but yep it doesn't stop the fact that, let's say, the fat, the turn fat into muscle claim is that there may still be a phenomenon that people are observing, but the person making the claim has maybe attributed the wrong mechanism to it, but sure. doesn't deny the fact that something is happening. Like someone might be recomping, but not for the reasons that they might think. Yeah, 100%. So you definitely have to, and, and that's a big part of, and I'll share with you guys another sort of cognitive process I go through. I'll address that in just a second. Let me get through a couple more of these and I'll address that no problem. Third to last is someone makes a claim that nearly all or all other experts are wrong and by a wide margin. If I said, look, Alan Aragon, Eric Helms, Brad Schoenfeld, James Krieger, all those guys are fucking completely wrong about this thing. I'm right because they're dumb and I'm smart. You have to be like, maybe, make, maybe Mike's just that much smarter than everybody, but maybe he's fucking wrong and making shit up on the spot. It looks bad. And people love iconoclastic experts. Like with COVID-19, you had people being like, this doctor says COVID is bullshit. Yeah, sweet. There's a thousand other doctors that say he's both fucking retarded and also wrong. So people love that stuff and they use it as a positive. They're all like, this iconoclast. Yeah, iconoclasm is like romantic, but nine out of 10 times, iconoclasm means you're wrong and everyone else is right. There's like this really saccharine attempt to motivate children with posters of Einstein and being like, well, Einstein failed math and you did too. So maybe you can be the smartest man of all time. Like 
highly unlikely, right? Like, go your own way, have your own thoughts. Yeah, you should have your own thoughts. But if all the other experts are saying something, you should at least in your head have a real good refutation of why they're saying that and why you're right. And you hopefully aren't hitting the other things of just believe me kind of stuff. So if you don't know, if your parents send you a claim for medicine by just one guy and you look up and everyone disagrees with him, they're like, what do you think? Should I start taking a supplement? You might be like, mom. Maybe, but it sure as hell, I would like to hear what those other people think. <laughs> it just seems like if you're the only one saying something is true, there's a one in 10 chance that you're brilliant and ahead of your time. Totally possible. Nine out of 10 chance that you're just fucking wrong. I don't run my life on one out of 10s. I run my life on nine out of 10s. <laughs> I recommend the same for everyone else. Another one, so second to last one, is claiming a perfect or nearly ideal solution without acknowledging cost, complexities, or trade-offs. So people would like to get you to believe, for example, that the carnivore diet is this brilliant thing that knocks muscle growth, sleep, autophagy, allergic responses, uh, anti-nutrients. It just crushes all that at the same time. You're like, oh, that sounds really ideal. Like, yeah, humans are designed to be eating. I keep telling you, haven't you seen the memes of lions I've been sending you? And you're like, oh, totally. <laughs> I love those memes. Hashtag, you know, jungle shit. But at the same time, you bring up to them like, what about the costs? What are the downsides of, of eating carnivore? And they're like, there are none, bro. And you're like, all right. So what if I want fucking pizza and I can't have it ever? This is not fucking carnivore. And then they, they start to commit another problem, which is like evading the discussion or, or not treating it seriously. But any claim that seems like serendipitous is bad news. So for example, I advocate for high-level folks two-a-day training. And I never you'll never hear from me that two-a-day training is somehow serendipitous and checks all the boxes. It's like an, it's the best way to train. I'm convinced of it to get the most muscle you can. And then if people are like, so what's the downsides? Like massive fatigue and a gigantic waste of your time. Like, okay, so this is realistic, right? So, but if someone's look, this new way of training simultaneously gets you the best results and no fatigue, you gotta be like, man, that sounds too good to be true. And it probably is. And then the last one is when a person fronting a claim has a high degree of financial self-interest, political self-interest, but much more important than those two, ideological self-interest. So if someone who makes money from the fitness industry tells me like, hey, this is how fitness works, I'm like, yeah, maybe you're right, but maybe you're just trying to sell me shit. RP is absolutely candidate number one for that offset. Like, yeah, Mike Israel says volume is good, but he sells programs that push volume. And it's a good point. Like, it's got to be addressed. But money and self-interest in that regard pale in comparison to ideology. Like, uh, you guys ever talk to fitness influencers uh, that are vegan? Holy fuck, full <laughs> stop. You, like, you, there's some lines you just don't cross. And they'll be like, the meat industry just cares about profit. Like, do you agree with you? What do you care about? Like, and animal suffering? No. And you're like, oh, that seems reasonable. Full of trade-offs. <laughs> so uh, ideology sneaks in there because people sometimes are like, just follow the money. Like, Ideology does way more fucked up shit than money. The communists crushed the Soviet Union for 70 years, made no money doing it. Zero money was made uh, exclusively for ideology. So it's a thing and it pervades fitness and everything else. So those are the those things. Do you guys want to talk about that real quick or do you want me to go back and circle to addressing the uh, how I deal with ideas up front? So I think just because you've got hard cut off, it might be... <laughs> It might be good to... Hard um, cut off, trademark. Yeah. <laughs> Hard cut off in parentheses, 1997. You're like, oh, that's when it was released. I was 12. <laughs> yeah. How hard is my life? See? Very much. I've completely lost where we are now. Oh, so, I'm sorry. Yeah. The, um, the thing about the, these all being devices to put a claim forward and to sneak it past people, 
But we were saying about it doesn't necessarily take away from the fact that a phenomenon might be happening, but someone's making yes. a claim with ulterior motives around that. Yes. So here we go. Anytime you want to really examine a claim, you have to do at least two things to it, probably three. Thing number one, and I do this for every claim I'm deeply interested in examining to see what truth value or validity it has. This is right here, what I'm about to describe, the very core of critical thinking. Number one, you steal man the living fuck out of it, which is to say you get all the support, all the potential support that claim claims or could claim, you just list it. Like, we could steal man carnivore. Like, yeah, it seems to have some anti-allergic properties. Yes, it's fundamentally very simple to comply with. You can't fuck up carnivore if you have an IQ above 65. If it's not meat, just don't eat it. Can I have that? No, it's not meat. You're like, okay, sweet. Food prep is real easy. So on and so forth. So we just do a whole list of steel manning, which means you don't miss out on ideas and benefits just because you happen to think something's quirky. You want to give yourself full breadth and scope to be as logical as possible. Phase one is steel man the shit out of it. Phase two is, and unfortunately these two aren't, like there's there's blue teaming and red teaming, but nobody knows what blue teaming is. So red teaming, you red team next. Red teaming is from the intelligence and corporate communities. It's when your own people try to to contrary basically try to tear something down intellectually so for example if you guys have you guys ever seen the movie zero dark 30 hunt for osama bin laden Mm -hmm. anyway one of you has so there's like this one lady in the cia believes that osama bin laden is in this particular compound they have a red team go through and do an analysis and they're like there's a 60 percent chance it's just some kind of drug lord there's another 20 percent chance it's a high level guy but it's not osama bin laden so on and so forth they argue against the claim in-house to make sure that when they go out in the world and make decisions they've heard all the contrary arguments of how it could go poorly so first you steal man the claim and then you red team the shit out of it you'll be like here's why carnivore is bullshit blah that's bullshit that's that and then what you do point number three is you superimpose the steel man and red team and you see how many of the steel man's claims survive a real thorough red teaming so this might involve like googling research you're like okay they claim that it's actually less allergenic to eat like this google allergenic proclivities with various diets and you find out that like yeah, in fact, some plant foods do have some weird allergic stuff in humans, and it actually is a claim that holds up. They say, okay, the red team couldn't destroy that one. So then we were up at 20 positives for, for a carnivore. We're now on that balance, eight negatives and only two positives. That gives you a nuanced, holistic understanding of the landscape. So when someone says, hey, should I do carnivore? You can go, probably not. And like, but I heard it has great benefits for allergy stuff. And like, that's true. So are you experiencing any allergic reactions to food? Do you have any weird gut stuff? And they're like, no. And like, well, then you probably wouldn't be a candidate for it. And they're like, can I just try it? You're like, you sure can. But let's talk about these other negatives real quick. It's going to bore you to tears. It may lead to some uh, micronutrient insufficiencies. It's incredibly you know, difficult to do at parties, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, that's, you really thought this through. So if you debate someone on a carnivore side, because you steal man the shit out of their point, you already know all the good stuff they're going to say. And because you red teamed the fuck out of it, you get some real nasty questions for that person that they probably can't answer. So before you go out in the world with any idea you either formulate yourself or absorb from someone else, steal man the shit out of it, red team the fuck out of it, and then whatever survives is your best guess of what's going on. Of course, we're all human. We can still make mistakes. You can miss some steel man points. You can red team in a shitty way or excessively where you 
cancel out points that actually held some truth. But if you never try this process at all, you're just going on just sheer intuition. And that's really bad news. Like, for example, I'm like a pretty staunch anti-communist, uh, but I can absolutely go down the list and steal man the fuck out of communism for you. Uh, it's just got a lot going for it. The thing is, unfortunately, when you red team, it's got way less going for it than you would think. But if you can't steal man a position, then you're for sure not critical thinkers. So just a really quick example about that. If, if someone's if anti-gay protester is, I hate the fucking gays, and you're like, okay, can you tell me like a couple things that are good about being gay? They'd be like, there's nothing good about it. And you're like, yeah, let's just say being gay is totally evil. At least it saves you time not having to deal with the opposite sex. There's like, well, you're just on the same page right away. And they're like, no. And you're like, okay, whatever. Like, yeah, I, can, I can tell you're not thinking at all. And of course, if you can't red team something, red teaming, another way to say it is, how could I be wrong? How could I be wrong? I don't know your guys' political views. There's a lot of work in critical theory, like social justice studies, basically. Like a lot of times you read this stuff and you're like, did you guys ever ask yourselves how you could be wrong? Because there's at least 10 things in here that are just straight up bullshit you haven't thought about for two seconds. But there, there's an entire thing of if you ask the wrong questions and if you're doubtful, then you're a misogynist, uh, homophobic, racist, you name it. There's all kinds of crazy shit. So it's okay. I feel like we're inoculating ourselves to critical thinking at this point. True critical thinking is about all the pluses, all the minuses, make them fight each other, see what drops out. Whatever drops out is the likely reality. I think that's a that's actually a bullying tactic to stop people from even asking a question sure. in order to evaluate claims critically because as soon as the question is asked, it's, oh no, you must be the extreme of the other side uh, we're not going to engage in the discussion yeah pretty dangerous when you're putting out as much content as you are mike and you're conscious of these like every youtube video you put out that has claims in it or statements in it is the stuff that gets to content level presumably this critical thinking approach happens far in advance of anything that you're oh yeah yeah so i suppose if this sort of putting this distilling this down into some practical like if i'm a expert in the fitness industry i'm thinking about how do i put how do i create content that's accessible for my clients and i'm thinking about i'm going to do a video about the carnivore diet for example because i get asked about it a lot this process is not what you sit down and do before you make the video i imagine this is the thinking that happens far in advance you get very clear on your views and you have this balanced argument that then makes it down into a a a content process where you feel comfortable talking about the, the points for me, absolutely. I don't. I almost never make content about things I'm not really pretty sure I have figured out. I think for me, at my level of education, I'd be mildly responsible. I think people don't come to me for new quirky shit. That's oh, this is cool. I wish you'd talk about this new thing. I just I don't do that. I talk about set in stone things. I think there is um, a, t- a tendency for people to conflate the novel and interesting with the deeply true and perennial. And I specialize much, much more in the, in the latter than I do in the former. There's plenty of YouTubers and stuff that specialize. Did you see that new study? Or here's like ways to increase your sleep quality that maybe you're bullshit, but we have one or two studies on each of them. I don't ever get into that shit. I just like the super solid stuff and drawing um, practical significance out of what I think is pretty super solid. And if I don't think it's super solid, I'll just straight up say it. So I'm like, Stimulus to fatigue ratio stuff, like the pump as a proxy for hypertrophy, disruption as a proxy. I'll say, folks, this is our scientific best guess at the time. It may very well turn out to be wrong. It's probably not all wrong, though, so maybe you can get some utility out of it. So I don't get dogmatic uh, well, ever, really, but I don't get very dogmatic until and unless I've really thought something through. There's tons of literature. For example, does more volume to a point cause more hypertrophy? 
there's no point in debating that anymore because it's so fucking true. Like clearly nobody believes one rep of a single at 100% is going to grow you as much as two reps at 95%. Like that's, it's out. So with that kind of stuff, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty set in stone about it. But the process to evaluate that the red teaming and 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 steel manning that happened a long time ago ideally and i think a lot of people the way they create content is they'll find out something new and they'll make a youtube video about it after two hours of research and and then you can tell because you can there's a lot of claims just within that video like you didn't think this through because if you thought it through for another two hours you would have refuted half your own points it's not the way i do things maybe it's for some other folks to do but i think there's enough bullshit out there of people guessing at stuff to where i'm not going to get into that realm so just like final question, Mike, because I'm aware you've got some filming, I think, happening in, in four minutes. Against my will. <laughs> Against your will. So if that's the case, so the stuff that you're, because I think this is a problem that, again, a lot of people in the fitness industry come up against where they're trying to make new content about stuff that has been more or less argued to death or there's points at a very set in stone. You're pretty prolific on YouTube. How do talk us through just are you behind that strategy? Is that someone else saying, Mike, make a video on this? Because you you seem to put out a lot of very thorough videos about broadly the same thing, but they're all yeah. very they're all still new and interesting angles on the yeah. same information. Yeah. So for me, making YouTube videos is actually quite simple. It's for business strategy wise, it's really straightforward. We try to build as big of a YouTube platform as we can for RP so we can eventually advertise digital products to the fraction of the YouTubers that would like to consume them. In the interim, we offer people a gazillion you know, uh, pounds of free knowledge that is great for PR anyway because they're like, dude, RP is the fucking shit. All you do is pump up free content. But also YouTube makes us directly some money, which is neat. But in any case, it's just all good all around. But for me, like the corporate strategy is fine and good, but I also derive a lot of personal satisfaction and, and purpose from creating YouTube content. Because of two things. One, I get asked a lot of questions, for example, on social media. And I get asked a question, like, the fuck does this person not know that? And then I try to answer the question. And I'm like, this wouldn't work because what you want is a lot of tension on the muscle. And they're like, is tension important? I'm like, oh, my fuck. So I got to go to YouTube <laughs> and, and make a, like, a video series we have as hypertrophy made simple. And it's just like five minutes each one of 16 videos of just watch this video series and you're going to know so much basics that now you can start to evaluate the more specific claims. Because a lot of people have questions about really specific claims and there's no context to understanding them. Like, do my reps work? I'm like, yeah, yeah, they work pretty well depending on context, but they just have no idea about context at all. Like they don't work with big exercises because it's too much systemic fatigue. And they're like, what's systemic fatigue? And I'm like, fucking hell. <laughs> it's like asking Elon Musk, like, how does this microchip work? And he's like, it's a transistor thing. You're like, what's a transistor? You're like, <laughs> I don't know, and he's like, "How were you prepared for me to answer your question if you barely even speak the language?" So for me, a big part of YouTube is getting basic information out and then threading on top of it to get it from basic to applicable. And because I get asked so many questions, just because there's so much to talk about, I have a list of videos to make, and that list at our current release schedule is already five years long. So I have every video we're ever going to do on YouTube wow. tracked out for five years because I would sit down for months and be like, fuck, okay, I got to make this, that, this, that, that series because people keep asking me questions. And I'm like, I can't just keep saying the same shit over and over. I got to get YouTube videos to talk about this stuff. So literally YouTube is like my training brain just like on YouTube. And to me, it just comes out of a source of frustration. And the second part is there's other people on YouTube just 
talking nonsense, as you may say, but just like literally just garbage backwards, opposite of the truth, like Thomas DeLauer and all those people are like, you got to do dry fast for 36 hours. Shut the fuck up. And I got to put YouTube content down there refuting those myths and getting people grounded in the basics so they never fall for that shit to begin with. Five years. Yeah, currently. As in there's there's another five years to come from now? Yeah, yeah. Wow. I guess... To wrap that up, Mike, where uh, apart from the next five years of YouTube content, where do they go? Where do they go to find out more YouTube's about Mike a good and place RP? To start. Thank you so much. YouTube is a good place to start. And then, of course, Instagram, RP Dr. Mike, at RP Strength on Instagram. Those are the only three parts of the internet that are relevant to me. We get to the website uh, through all those clicks. But yeah, YouTube is a good place to go if you want to learn some stuff, especially going to YouTube and click on playlists. Scroll down a bit, you'll get a bunch of basics playlists that are just like 16 videos about hypertrophy. And once you really think about them, you're going to be like, man, I know a lot of shit because there's no, because a lot of people make these videos for a specific topic within hypertrophy. But you could ask yourself, where do I go to just learn about hypertrophy? Like, are YouTube's a decent place to start? They're all very watchable as well. It's not dry oh, thank you academic so much. stuff that they're pretty entertaining. Very good. Yeah. Well, biased source, but thank you so much. <laughs> awesome. Mike, I hope the filming goes well. I hope you get featured on uh, Pornhub Premium. We will speak to you soon. Every day I wish for that. Guys, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll speak uh, next time and we'll make more jokes at the expense of British culture, I hope. <laughs> Amazing. That's good. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> Take care, guys. <laughs> bye bye. Want to learn more about the systems we use to run? build and scale propanefitness.com head over to propanefitness.com forward slash business podcast and you can get your hands on our free training that covers the seven steps that we take with every client that we help build their own online business and also the seven steps that we use to successfully build propane fitness we walk through the sales systems the delivery systems follow-up remarketing how to basically build your program so that it delivers coaching to your clients without you being there 24 7 we really do cover the full thing right and if you want to continue even further and potentially work with us there's a chance to book in a call to have an informal chat with Yusuf or I to just basically see if any of our programs would be a fit to help you get from where you are to where you want to get to. So go to propanefitness.com forward slash business podcast today and get access to that. If you'd like to learn just more about Yusuf and I, more about us, what we do, follow us on the various channels, the best place to go is our YouTube channel. We have a load of stuff from fitness content, productivity content, why Yusuf slept on the floor for several months, why he's been having cold showers. There's always stuff on there that's entertaining and hopefully informative. So just go to YouTube, search for Propane Fitness, and you can find out a bit more about us there as well. Speak to you on the next episode.